Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, our praises and our prayers are our return of what you have given to us. We have been reconciled to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. So all of our words and thoughts and energy belong to you. We are not our own. Through the sending of your Holy Spirit, you have made us your dwelling place. You live in and among us. So we exchange our broken will for yours so that in our lives, your will is done. We celebrate that we have been purified from our sins. So we are fit for your presence. And as is fitting, we offer our lives as a living sacrifice to you. We no longer live to bring honor to ourselves, but to you. So Lord, forgive us for the ways that we've fallen short of your holiness this week. Lord, have mercy on us, for we have sinned. In some way, we have all set our minds on the flesh. Whether we seek the approval of man, the false riches of the earth, self-righteous judgment, or numbness to the needs of those around us. Our minds are so easily set in opposition to your spirit. We confess these things. We confess them so that we can be rid of them, so that we can die to them, so that we can live and move and be animated by your spirit in Christ and to your praise. Help us in the parts of our heart that are resisting you. Keep us from apathy that results in death and help us to submit to your lordship. We are thankful for all of our sister churches that are working to reveal your lordship in this age. Specifically, we pray for Salem Reformed Baptist and Hope Church in Tacoma. For both of these gatherings of believers, we ask for protection from the accuser. We know that they are battling spiritual forces of evil that want to take them down. So we ask for protection and that they would take refuge in you. Let truth, righteousness, your word, and the gospel of peace be their constant companion. In trials and in times of ease, make their faith a shield against all attacks. Give them all, led by their pastors, boldness in the gospel, knowing that you are with them. We pray all of these same things for ourselves and we ask most especially today for boldness. Give us the boldness to let your word into our hearts, to ransack them of any and all rebellion. Take down our defenses. Give us courage because you are the great physician and you're doing a healing work in us. We don't need to be afraid. You have our good in mind. We are beggars and you are our benevolent Lord. We continue to entreat on behalf of Debbie Jacobson as her body fights an infection. And we pray for healing and relief from the pain. Lord, give, them, give the doctors wisdom as they make decisions on a treatment plan. Guide them so that this can be resolved as quickly and smoothly as possible. Give Dave and Debbie great peace in the midst of this. Even now, give them a great sense of your tender presence with them. And we pray this for the many others in our church who are struggling with health. Whether it's aging bodies or the cycle of colds that families with young children face, give us all patience and stir up our longing for the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell perfectly with you. Father, we are excited to hear from your word today as it contains life-giving bread 
and water that satisfies our deepest thirst. We ask that you would nourish us with your word. And we ask all of this under the will and rule of your son, Jesus. Amen. 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 I'm so thankful for good pastors who can represent us to the Lord in pastoral prayer. Thank you, Ryan, for that. And good job to all of you. Congregational singing sounded fantastic this morning. I know I'm encouraged by it. Thank you for using your voices to glorify the Lord. You can open up to Galatians 5 this morning. Galatians 5. Have you ever noticed how you can often tell where someone is from simply by observing them? Their behaviors often will give you a glimpse as to the culture they came from, or the geography they are used to, or the language they grew up speaking. I know it's anathema to say this nowadays, but you can often tell a book by its cover. To understand the influences that are behind that person, you can often just simply observe them. Let me give you an example. When I went to college in the Midwest, it was a very different climate. And coming from the Pacific Northwest, I was very unprepared for what I would encounter. Summers were about 100 degrees Fahrenheit with about 3,000% humidity. And then it moved into about two weeks of beautiful fall weather, and only two weeks. It was then that one of my assistant coaches noticed that I was one of the few people on campus that simply wore a rain jacket when it rained and did not carry an umbrella. And my response to him was that I was from the Pacific Northwest. And in the Pacific Northwest, you know the people that did not grow up there because they carry umbrellas. There was an unwritten rule for me as a Pacific Northwesterner to not carry an umbrella. But then it was even worse in the winter because the lake affects snow and some sub-zero wind chill was something completely foreign to me. It's the worst, isn't it, Chicagoans? Yeah? The worst. And so everyone knew that I did not grow up there because for most of that first winter, I froze to death in my multiple layers made up of a long sleeve shirt, a sweatshirt, and a windbreaker. Because guess what? I'm from the Pacific Northwest. And everyone on campus could tell without me ever speaking a word that I was either not very smart or I was probably from some other part of the country. They could observe where I was from, the culture I came from, simply by looking at my evidential behavior. Our worldview, our culture, our geography, our time period, our friends and family, they all influence how we live and act. They show what has influence over us. And just as I had an unwritten rule of how most people in the Pacific Northwest dress for rain, <clears throat> all of us have rules that we follow in life. These unwritten rules of personal right and wrong lead to our behavior. But for Christians, as we've seen throughout this series on the Lordship of Christ and the life of the Christian, we have a very specific authority. The core of the gospel that we believe and preach is that we have a Savior who has been enthroned as our King. And this inauguration of His kingdom has provided a place for us to be drawn so that we might be free from the rebellious kingdom to which we once pledged our citizenship. And it is there that we have the Spirit of God poured into our hearts so that we are changed to walk as citizens of his dominion, a dominion that reflects and is based upon his character and his wisdom. Unfortunately, we must realize that at the same time, we are also cultural transplants. We are folks who have renounced our original citizenship and taken on a new citizenship, but we are, in a sense, in a sense, first-generation immigrants into the kingdom of heaven. 
And the culture and influences of the place we came from, the kingdom of darkness, have stuck with us a bit. Worst of all, they're ingrained in us. They're habits. They're neural pathways. They're innate. And so we must war against them as we seek to embrace our new citizenship in the kingdom of Christ. Now this morning, the Apostle Paul will help us understand all of this and point us in a direction of what it looks like to live a life that belongs to the Lord. To live a life that belongs to the Lord. If he is truly our king, if he is truly our Lord, then our life belongs to him. It is his to do with as he pleases. Now this will be the final sermon that is part of our series on the Lordship of Christ. I'll follow it up with a connection point to the story of Christ's birth next week in anticipation of Christmas, but today I want to finish with a proactive look at what a life that is the Lord's looks like. Now we have hammered home a number of texts to bring conviction about whether or not we are actually individually under the Lordship of Christ. And many of you have come to me and said, this has been a very convicting sermon, and I want to share with you for myself, it has been as well, to a great degree. And so this morning, what I want to focus on is what that conviction then should produce. And I hope that as we look at this, not only will it give us an understanding of the identity that each of us should have as Christians, but it will help with motivation to stay active in our fight against sin. I think some of us often encounter an assumption, an expectation that at some point in this earthly life, we should be done, we should be victorious, and we should never have to fight sin again. But the life of a Christian is daily warfare until Christ brings us home. And so we have to fight. It will help us, hopefully today, stay active in this fight against sin. We need to realize that the expectation of holiness in our life is not something that comes passively, not something that comes quickly, but it is something that comes over time as we actively partner with the Holy Spirit in his work within us. So let's begin this morning by stepping into our text and seeing what Paul the Apostle has to share with us. And this is a very well-known text. You've probably read it many times. You may even quote it to your children in part. But let's read it and unpack it to understand what it says. Would you read with me in Galatians 5? And we're going to read a bit more than the text we are going to focus on just to give us some context. So let's read beginning in Galatians 5.13 this morning. 5.13, and we'll go all the way through 6.2. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing that we'll see in our selected text in verses 16 all the way through verse 26 is two conflicting natures. Two conflicting natures. As we've learned in previous sermons, Paul's letters were written to local church bodies dealing with specific and particular situations. Here in Galatia, the church was being infiltrated by Judaizers, Jewish religious leaders who were trying to tell the Gentile uh, Galatians that to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, one needed to keep the sacrificial Levitical laws. In particular, they were emphasizing the right of circumcision for the male members. If you are a good Christian, they were saying, then you need to be circumcised. It is against this argument of legalism and adherence to the Levitical law that Paul spends the majority of the first part of this letter fighting. But then one of the great marks of a leader and teacher is that Paul anticipates that his fight against being enslaved to the Levitical law might make some overcorrect in the other direction. There might be some amidst the body, and perhaps even the Judaizers themselves, that would take this call to grace over law as a license to do whatever they would like, because as he notes, they are called to freedom from the law. This may have even been one of the charges that the Judaizers set against Paul and his gospel, is that he was given to libertinism. In either case, Paul heads this view off at the pass in verse 13 and emphasizes that there is still a law in place. But it is not the Levitical law or the ceremonial law. It is the law that is fulfilled in sacrificial and covenantal love for one another. Now you will notice if you look closely that Paul puts bookends on the section we're about to unpack with the statements of what the law is at its bedrock. First, look at verse 14. Verse 14. Verse 14 says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then, in chapter 6, verse 2 is the second bookend when discussing how to restore someone who's found in sin, who is falling into some of these habits of the flesh. Okay, he says this in 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He puts bookends of law on this discussion that we're about to unpack. And these bookends help us to understand there is a contained thought here that we should pull apart and understand and expose. And it's directly related to this idea that Paul was calling the Galatian Christians to live under the influence, under the authority of the new nature into which they had been brought by their Lord. They were being called now to live by the law of Christ's rule, not under the law under which they used to be governed, the law that pointed out their hearts of sin and rebellion against God. To walk in a libertine mindset or an anti-law, or the fancy term is antinomian mindset, would be to default to the governing influence of the flesh from which the gospel declares that we are saved, that we are broken free from. So Paul next responds with, 
But I say, in verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Immediately, Paul uses contrasting names for two opposing forces of influence on the life of any Christian. You see, the non-Christian has one influence upon their life, and that is the influence of the flesh, the kingdom of darkness. There is no moral good in the non-believer. The world will say that's not true, that there's a spark of moral good in every human. The Bible says something completely different. It says that if you are not in Christ, as we read earlier in Romans 8, you are under the authority and the law of the kingdom of darkness. You follow Satan. And that is not meant as shock and awe. It is simply the reality of what the Bible paints. But Paul says, for the Christian then, who has been brought out of that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life, they have two opposing forces active in their life. So let's pause and ask what these refer to. First, he says, walk by the Spirit. Now, we're going, to go, we're going to go into this in great detail as we work through 1 Corinthians beginning in the new year. But what Paul does here is he uses the word spirit very specifically. Unfortunately, because of the infiltration of bad Pentecostal theology, bad theology in general, throughout the church in the U.S., our understanding of the spirit is often twisted from what Scripture actually says. We often will think of the word spirit in the definition of the non-physical part of a person, which is the seat of emotions and character, or a specified emotion or mood. Everything spiritual in most of the church is actually just emotional. We've connected the word to the false therapeutic gospel and pulled it away from its scriptural moorings. But the spirit is not actually an it. The spirit is not a panentheistic force, like in Star Wars, that moves around and can be invited in and leave the church, as often you find in many worship songs. That is not the spirit of the holy God. The spirit is a person, one person of three in the triune God to be exact. And so let's see how Paul describes him here in Galatians. Would you look back with me to chapter 3? Look at Galatians 3.14. He'll tell us who the spirit is. In 3.14 he says, So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The promised spirit tells us that this means the Old Testament gets to tell us who the spirit that is holy is. The spirit is the fulfillment of the promise given by God to his Old Testament saints as they sat amidst a nation that was overall rebellious against his rule. It was the people who were his, his elect in the midst of the Jews, calling out for God to rule when the people as a whole had gone away from his rule. And we've looked at these passages in this series in Jeremiah and Ezekiel to name a few. What was the promise that came with the work of the spirit? Well, the promise was that the hearts of God's chosen people from every nation under heaven would be changed from the core, from rebellious hearts to become obedient hearts to God's rule. They would become hearts that had a new affection to serve the Lord. And so the Spirit's primary job is to change hearts so that they might be obedient to the Lord. When we talk about the Spirit, we're talking about authority. And Paul also notes when and how the Spirit comes into the lives of the chosen people of God in this same section. Look back just a couple verses earlier to Galatians 2 through 6. Or sorry, uh, Galatians 3, verses 2 through 6. Galatians 3, 2 through 6, he says, Let's, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? 
Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The Spirit, he is given or sent by God and received by faith. There is no work that can earn his presence. There is no invitation in any worship song that can invite him. There is no human manipulation that can bring him forth. There is no ecstatic utterance that can make him work in your life. He is an emissary sent by the reigning Lord into the midst of his people. And when he is sent, he takes up residence and he does not leave. And he takes up this residence when God first changes your heart by the act of justification through the redemptive death, resurrection, and enthronement of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings that justification to bear. And this is what Paul means by saying, having begun by the Spirit. You see, there is no second work of the Holy Spirit for any of you who were brought up in Pentecostalism. There is one work of the Holy Spirit, and it comes at the beginning. In other words, you wouldn't be saved without the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, then are you now being perfected in the flesh? You see, the Spirit is given as the gracious and merciful gift of God. He is not brought to bear by works that we can accomplish in the flesh. And so we have here the agent or emissary of God's sovereign reign who enters the heart of the person God has justified by his gracious choice. An emissary is one who is sent in the authority of another and acts on their behalf. You can think of them as a diplomatic representative sent on behalf of a king or a president. In this role, the Holy Spirit changes the heart of the person from a hardened heart of rebellion to a soft heart of humility. He does so so that the heart might be open to the illumination of God's law, that the recipient of grace might have changed affections towards obedience to God. Here's how it is spoken of in the promise to the prophet Ezekiel. This is in just chapter 36, verse 27. He says, and I will put my spirit within you. And notice what the spirit does. Does he act as a magic eight ball that tells you how you should live your life outside of the will of God? Logistically, no, not at all. Is he the one that gives you special words that allow you to have a spiritual power over people around you? No, not at all. Notice what he does. He will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So Paul says, walk by the Spirit, synonymous with walk in obedience. Walking by the Spirit is to live a life governed by the Spirit's emissarial rule, as if an ambassador ruling in an embassy. And that is what each of us are. Isn't that cool? Each of us are, in a sense, an embassy of the kingdom of heaven no matter where we go. Why? Because the ambassador, the emissary of the king sits within us and drives us to reflect him. And then collectively, what a power we are when we come together. The fullness of the local church sits as a beautiful embassy reflecting heaven in the midst of a very foreign and hostile kingdom. Now Paul continues, if we walk under the authority of the Spirit, pointing us to obedience in God's commands, he then says, back in our text in verse 16, we will not gratify the commands of the other possible master that holds on to, to us from our past citizenship, 
which is our selfish, overlording, sinful flesh. And these two friends, they can't coexist. There is no coexist sticker on the car of the Holy Spirit. They can't coexist. They are diametrically opposed to one another. They cannot coexist. For one is based in rebellion against God's lordship and utter selfishness. The other is based in obedience to God's lordship and the resulting selflessness which comes from a heart turned towards Christ. Friends, we have to admit to ourselves, I have had to admit to myself in the midst of this series that when I act in the flesh, I'm not going, hey, Lord, let me step away for a minute and do something on my own and I'll be back to worship you in a second. I am turning completely towards the sovereignty of Satan and saying, I will bow at your feet. When we sin, that's what we're doing. It's not a glitch. It is full-fledged rebellion. And the Lord has convicted me greatly of that that there is no excuse for the Christian. None. Paul notes then that the flesh stands in the way regularly of the Spirit's guidance and governance, which keeps us from doing what our justified hearts at their core long to do, which is to be obedient to our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what a heart that has been justified by God's grace desires. Its deepest desire is that God be glorified and we be sanctified to his glory. Paul concludes this opening thought with the statement that we can only be led by one of these two influencing agents. Our selfishness that results in love of self over the other or Christ's selflessness that results in love of other over self. If we are led by one, we will not be led by the other. In other words, if a room is full of light, very hard for darkness to stay present. In every moment of life, brothers and sisters, every decision we make as followers of Christ, we are either going to follow one of these two influencing masters. And the key is to realize that we have been set free from the horrible master of our flesh. By Christ's forgiveness and gracious gift of the Spirit, you and I have the freedom to no longer choose to obey our flesh. The freedom to choose to no longer obey our flesh. And we know this because Paul uses the words flesh and law interchangeably. Look at verse 18 there. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He uses flesh and law interchangeably. We know this because of our reading in Romans and what's right before it. Just before that section we read earlier, Paul is introducing the same topic of warfare between the flesh and the spirit. He says this in Romans 7, 10 through 14. He says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Sin dwelt in us and used the commandment, the commands of God as the jumping off point uh, the beachhead, if you will, 
to rebel against God's law. We are so sinful that when the law was presented to us, hey, don't murder, we went, nope, I'm gonna do it anyway. The law that represents the heart and character of God, and that's why it is good and holy and righteous, became the point where our flesh despised God and proved that we are gonna do our own will. So when Paul says here in Galatians, you are no longer under the law, he is not stating that we can be lawless and do as we please, for that would be the same sinful flesh as before. He is stating clearly that we are now under a new law, the correct law, which is in fact the same law, the law of God. But because it is now working from our heart outward, due to the emissarial authority of the Holy Spirit, we can now walk in it. It's no longer a jumping off point for our sinful flesh to say, forget you, God, I'm gonna do what I want. It's now the beachhead of God's conquering of our heart. A simple way to remember it is that the law was written in great part as boundaries. No idolatry, no murder, no covetousness. Our rebel flesh said yes to each of them. But the law by the Spirit points us to covenantal faithfulness with the one true God. So idolatry is not even a thing for the Christian. It points us to sacrificial love of one another. And so the hatred behind murder isn't even a thing for the Christian. And it points us to thanksgiving and contentment. So covetousness, wanting what we do not have because we think we are owed it, it's not even a thing for the Christian. You might say, well, Hans, then why is it still present in my life? Because you're under the flesh and allowing that master to still reign. And this war, we will see, friends, it lasts our entire life. And so just because it's present doesn't mean you give up and say, well, I guess I've been conquered by the wrong master and I should just give up and engage in it. No, we fight. So one might wonder, with two warring influences in our lives, you might think, hopefully, which one am I operating under? Well, Paul says, let's now list out some of the outcomes of each influencing master because like my inability to get a winter jacket, it evidenced which kingdom I'm from, where, where I'm from, where I originate. And so these evidences that Paul is now going to give help us understand which ruling nature we are sitting under. And so first, let's look at the evidence of the reigning old nature, the reigning old nature in verses 19 through 21. Paul gives two lists of manifestations of these influences, or markers, if you will, of which sovereign power is at work in us. The new nature of the spirit that was given to us at the time of justification and helps us walk in the will of the Lord, or the old nature of the flesh, which is that which is, uh, we were born into due to our original sin nature. And what we'll notice here is that he links back and says it's beastly in its rebellion against God, in its love of self, and its desire to dominate others. You can actually see Paul's train of thought on this if you look back to the literary context of what we read in verse 15. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And Paul has similar language to this in Philippians. He's hearkening back to this idea that in the garden, we were to have dominion over the beasts of creation, including the serpent himself. And yet, in our rebellion, mankind submitted ourselves to the beast's dominion. This is why he's called the beast in Revelation. It's, a, it's speaking of Satan. In so doing, we became reflections of the beasts that bite and devour one another. This is our old nature of rebellion against God's law and embrace of 
the law ruling the kingdom of darkness. So Paul then lists the evidences that one is operating according to this sovereignty, the sovereignty of the selfish flesh, and therefore the sovereignty of Satan's rebellious will. Now as we go through them, I want to challenge you to open your ears and eyes to the possibility that these are present in your life and take note of them if so. Let's read the whole list here, starting in verse 19. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are, or excuse me, verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The first three all fit together. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Sexuality as it was created at its core glorifies God because it takes our sovereignly designed and assigned genders and uses them to collectively procreate offspring within the bounds of a covenant union. It is the perfect picture of the offspring of God's kingdom that come about due to Christ's intimate covenant union with his bride, the church. To operate in any other way is to destroy the picture that God built into his creation. To operate in any way outside of this design leads to an impurity that makes us unfit to come before God. Why? Because we are innately saying, I don't want to follow your rule. So why on earth would we want to be in his presence? It makes us impure. And the fornication of sexual immorality and impurity, well, it's based upon sensuality, which is an unchecked desire to use others for one's own gratification. There could not be a more clear manifestation of the lordship of self. One of the core gifts of Christianity to the world a world full of selfish sensuality was the truth of intimate love within the confines of loving covenant faithfulness. It was a great gift to the world. The next two fit together as well. Rather than being reflections of God to others as we were created to be, idolatry is the molding of God into our form and likeness that we might be lords over God and one another. Sorcery fits right along with it because sorcery at its core, witchcraft if you will, is the manipulation of the divine to serve your lordship, your purposes. Friends, we dabble in this when we pray in ways that only glorify us and don't glorify or adore God. Both of them seek to conquer the sovereignty of God and overwhelm it with the sovereignty of the self. And then we see that the next seven sit in the context of communal relationships. Enmity characterizes one who is just generally hostile to others. And friends, this can come in less severe forms of being a contrarian or a critic, regularly sitting in sarcasm or tearing down others to build oneself up. All of these are enmity. Strife then ties into jealousy, where we covet what others have. 
And we'll see in his list here that it builds. It starts with this basic idea where I just want what other people have, but then it will get worse and worse as the list goes on. But in this jealousy, in this strife, we sit outside of the thankfulness meant to define us as obedient creatures under the creator God. Anytime we say, dear friends, wouldn't life be better if God would just allow me to have this or that? We are sitting in jealousy and rivalry rather than contentment and thanksgiving. But Hans, I just want a bigger house. I just want a few more things on Amazon. I just want a different car. I, you know, I've had this car for a long time. I... Friends, to sit in any form of this is to sit outside thanksgiving and contentment. Paul continues describing the relational nature of these works of the flesh in explicit detail with fits of anger and rivalries. Fits of anger are not a low-level simmering hostility like enmity, but spurts of rage that come forth quickly and then die. The Greek word for rivalries here is not just a base jealousy as stated earlier. It is a resentment that builds due to someone else having something you desire. You begin to look at the person differently. Well, they have something that I deserve. I work hard. I should have what they have. And it starts to build. And some of these things, maybe not materially, but maybe emotionally, this jealousy, this strife, it results in these fits of anger where our lordship is not being respected. Friends, there has been no more convicting piece of this list for me than that. When my lordship is disrespected, I can feel that anger grow. And that, friends, is the core and heart of sin in my own personal life. How much do I need to fight against it? How much do you need to fight against each of these? The next two go together as well. Dissensions are simply the opposite of unity. Breaking apart rather than coming together. When a breaking apart happens, we know that someone is operating in the flesh. This is why I'm dumbfounded in the church when people are like, I'm leaving that church, I don't like it. And people are like, oh yeah, they're still in the spirit. Bye. No, they're operating in dissension, which at its core... What is it? It's driven by the flesh. It's not that a person is leaving well. That's a totally separate thing. When a breaking apart happens, we know that someone is operating in the flesh. For the Spirit, friends, brings unity. It doesn't bring dissension. Divisions, then, are more particular. Divisions are heretical divisions. The Greek word heresis is where we get our word for heresy. It's heresy that leads to tribalism over ideas. It's not going to the word and saying, well, I don't understand it, and I may not like it, but this is what the word says, and so we're going to sit in unity under the lordship of Christ. It's manipulating and changing the word and going against historical orthodoxy to sit in a place where it makes you feel good about the theology you hold. Divisions. Envy falls in line with jealousy and rivalries, but the particular word here while overlapping in semantic range, doesn't stop with just jealousy that desires to have what others do. It goes as far as wanting to take it from them so that they no longer have it and you do. It is the highest form of envy, the highest form of jealousy where the lordship of self truly reigns because others have been put down. Drunkenness is next. It's linked here to the beastliness we mentioned earlier. 
For the Greeks, wine was a normal beverage because it was more healthy than the often compromised water to which they had access, and it was a less high alcohol content level than we know today. So most people in that day had a bit of a tolerance to fermented drink. They could drink it and not get drunk to the extent that we might see today. To get drunk in their context then was not simply drinking a glass of wine, for example, but it meant you were imbibing at an extraordinary amount, and so it would turn you into an animal that no longer had the ability to walk within the self-control of the Spirit. So how on earth could you think, if you're drunk, that you're walking in the Spirit? In fact, you are not. You're walking in the flesh. Orgies could also be known as carousing. That's a word you guys use a lot, right? Carousing? I'm about to go carousing. Well, this is revelry and partying that is degenerated to a level that it is out of control in its celebratory nature. It, it devolves to a place where we give ourselves the right to be and do whatever we think. The Greek word here is linked with the Greek god, the false god, Bacchus, the god of wine. It pictures gatherings characterized not by mutual sacrificial love and fellowship, but by drunkenness and excessive sensuality that leads to fornication. And he finishes with a catch-all. He says, any quality that connects to these characteristics of communal conflict or selfishness and dominance over others provides evidence that the influencing master in the life that exhibits them is sin and the kingdom of darkness. And so, friends, when we look at Paul's next statement, we have to realize it's not one of moral works or a, a call to change by white-knuckled obedience. It's a statement instead that if the evidence declares that you are in the kingdom of darkness, he says, you will obviously inherit what is determined for its inhabitants, which is God's wrath and eternal conscious torment. You will not inherit the eternal life and grace determined for God's kingdom citizens and offsprings. offspring. You are proving by your activity and manifesting that you sit under the lordship of the kingdom of darkness. So you'll get what is meant for those inhabitants. This is a statement of reality. And so friends, if this is you this morning, and, and I ask for you to look at this not as, yeah, well, I, don't, I haven't been to an orgy in a while, and I haven't been drunk in weeks, and... You know, uh, man, I don't have a, a witcher's, witch's brew pot in my house, so sorcery's out. Well, friends, focus it on the others. Idolatry? Anything in your life that takes the place of God? Enmity? Strive? Jealousy? Tell me when you're on Amazon next time that you're not sitting in a place of envy or jealousy. When you walk into somebody's house that's bigger or has more amenities than yours has. How about dissensions and divisions and fits of anger? And how about the lust of sensuality? Friends, if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that we might not be fighting the war as hard as we might need to. So if this is you, but you desire to walk in Christ, friends, join, join me in crying out in need and declare the fact that you are a sinner in rebellion against the one you would like to call Lord, the one who has justified you and saved you and given you a new heart. Friends, if that is you, which I think most of us in this room are, man, our elders want to walk with you, not because we figured it out, because every single one of us is just as convicted as you are. And we want to walk with you and pray with you so that we collectively as a church can walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Amen?
Come talk to us if that's you. If that is you, our elders are here to talk with you and walk with you in that pursuit. For Christ's desire is that you and I would live within the citizenship of his kingdom under his rule. Friends, I don't know about you, but every time I justify myself and act out of my own flesh, it leaves me on the other side destroyed. And the worst part is, is it doesn't stop there. What ends up happening is that destruction has ripple effects. Friends, do you want that? No, we don't want that as Christians. And so let's cry out in need because Christ's desire is that you and I would live within that citizenship of his kingdom under his rule. For those who are within his kingdom, they will exhibit something totally different. And that is the evidence of the reigning new nature. Let's look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice, first of all, that it is called the fruit of the Spirit, not just the works of the flesh. The sinful nature attempts to assert itself by its own power and strength, thus works. But the Spirit naturally produces new life. He replicates the image of Christ in those in whom he dwells. And we must be careful, therefore, to not simply place a therapeutic or Western definition upon these words. We must see them as the reflection of God's character, because that's what the Holy Spirit does. Because it is his spirit that is producing them and leading us in the will of God. So the love that the spirit produces, friends, it cannot be the love of the world. Love is love. It has to be the love of the God who is both merciful and just, who will bring both wrath and redemption. That is love. It defines itself, not by the therapeutic mindset of the world, but by God's character and nature. As we read these, let's take stock of whether or not they're evident in our lives. Contrary to the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit is first characterized by love. But this is not a subjective love that is defined by the one supposedly loving. It is not just positive regard. This is love that is defined by the character of God. It is covenant love from a covenant God whose primary display of this love was to sacrifice his son to save those whom he promised his faithfulness. It is a sacrificial love that is displayed most beautifully by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross so that those whom God chose since the foundations of the world might have their sins forgiven and they might exist in eternal life with the Lord. And this is the basis upon which all other laws and commandments of God exist. Subjective love says we can define love and that then becomes the trump card of all other definitions of what God wills. Well, I know God says that sexual immorality is bad, but what if they're in love? Well, you're misusing and perverting the word love. Objective, truthful love of God begins with God's will, God's commands, and God's character, and defines what love and hatred are based upon that. Try the next time you have to go to traffic court to tell the, the judge how to define traffic laws. It will not go well for you. 
And yet we do it every single day with the definitions of words against the one who has defined them from the beginning. God's love is one that, regardless of being, what is being done to it, responds in a way that is for the other person's good as its highest ideal. And those under the lordship of Christ operate within this form of love as their core motivation. It is a love that does not think of self, lowers self in order to raise the other. Lord, help us in that pursuit because I know for me that is alien. That is an alien righteousness that has to come from the imputed righteousness of Christ. Joy here is a sense of happiness that lasts beyond our circumstances because it is based in God's character and will, which never change and are always faithful. So because that is the basis of our happiness, it never changes. And therefore, we as Christians have to really look at ourselves and say, why am I down in this moment? God has not changed. It is not based on what I believe I deserve from God. That's when depression and anxiety and self-righteousness step in. But it's ultimately content at all times because it's based upon God himself. Those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ know that they can trust the Lord in anything that comes. And so, even if they don't understand it, even if they don't like it, they have a joy that surpasses understanding. Again, friends, I don't know about you. Maybe I'm the biggest sinner in the room. I think that's probably true. But this is an alien righteousness to me. It must come from the imputed righteousness of God through the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. And so we must beg for it and plead for it. Lord, give it to me through your Spirit. Peace is not just an absence of conflict, but an overwhelming sense that our lives and times are in the hand of a benevolent God who will bring all things to complete redemption. It is a heart that trusts this truth no matter what comes. That God is sovereign and he will bring his will to pass and his will is good. And it rests in that. Even when we can't understand the heart that knows it has been freed from the bondage of sin and brought into the eternal comfort of Christ can rest in his providence. Again, friends, pretty alien, isn't it? If I can't control it, then how can I trust it? That's what's natural to me. And so the spirit in me wars against the flesh. Lord, help us. Patience is then linked to peace because impatient comes when we try to assert our will and sovereignty over our surroundings because we feel we deserve to rule. Just have watched me during my kids' infant years and you will have seen the height of impatience. Why? Because I had things to get done. And bath time was keeping me from it. The handful of times I did bath time and it wasn't my wife being the faithful mom she is. I was impatient. Why? Because my lordship needed to reign. And that comes because I needed to assert my will. But friends, patience comes when we trust God in his providence to bring about his greater will at the appropriate time. The one who has the infinite Lord as king knows that there's no need for impatience. For we have eternity to look forward to. Time doesn't constrain us. Kindness and goodness then are closely linked as well. Goodness pictures the highest ideals of virtue linked with God's moral holiness. Kindness is the outworking of that virtue towards others for God's glory. And it is not just a kindness to make oneself look good, to elevate self, but a kindness meant to display the kindness of our King, our kind Lord. It's to be that emissary, to point to the kingdom of heaven. 
Faithfulness means a reliability and trustworthiness that comes from people who give their word. Friends, when we as Christians give our word, it should be gold. At its base, however, is what the surrounding context of an oath or vow initiates, which is covenant faithfulness. Those who are the Lord's will reflect the covenant faithfulness of a God who never leaves, never forsakes, nor abandons the people with whom he's in covenant. He's not a capricious God who changes his mind when we go against him. He is a God who is steadfast in his love toward those to whom he has vowed that love. And this is why covenant faithfulness is one of the key markers of one who is truly under the authority of the Lord. And friends, this is why covenant membership is implicit in the new covenant people of God. Because otherwise, if you can just come and go as you please, who's Lord of your life? But if you devote yourself to a group of people and sit under submission to their authority, you show who your Lord is, and that's Jesus Christ, the covenantal Lord. The next two go together as well. For gentleness needs self-control. In opposition to the unchecked anger and hostility of the heart given over to the flesh, the heart renewed by the Spirit sees no need, no need to violently assert its dominance over another. It trusts in God's justice and God's ability to right wrongs and prove lies false. And so those that are the Lord's are gentle in their interaction with others because they trust God's rule and know they're acting simply as emissaries and not Lord. And so self-control is a part of gentleness. But self-control is not the best label. For the self at its base might give us the idea that it is in one's own control over oneself, but in actuality, self-control has more to do with subjecting oneself to the control of the Spirit under the authority of the Lord. It is spirit control. Those that are under the lordship of Christ will regularly evidence these characteristics because the primary influencing factor of their life is the emissarial authority of the Holy Spirit acting on behalf of our enthroned king. And because these are brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Paul's next statement, which seems initially confusing, can be easily understood. He says this weird phrase, against such things there is no law. Well, the English is kind of clunky. Paul's point here is that these fruit of the Spirit are not individual identifiers that can be legally enforced. Instead, they are the natural occurrence of a tree that developed from the seed of God's gospel in Jesus, planted in a soil of a softened heart that has been plowed by the work of the Spirit, made possible by the merciful salvation of Jesus Christ, and now is playing out in obedience to our Lord. And so those who belong to Christ, those who have him as their Lord, will have these characteristics evidenced in growing fashion, praise God for that, growing fashion in how they live their lives. Just as Christ became sin and was crucified to do away with sin and death once and for all, we partner with the leading spirit of God's holiness to actively crucify the flesh with its requirements and longings that seek the Lord rather than to be Lord over God. So friends, we are engaged at every moment in the conflict of two natures, fighting with complete ferocity to put down the flesh, to do the most simple thing Christians do, which is to say no to ourselves and to allow the light of God's truth and will to permeate every area of our internal and external world. 
Brothers and sisters, as we observe these lists, I want to ask, what is more present as evidence of a ruling Lord in your life? The evaluation is one that should be happening regularly for the Christian. Every moment of every day. And friends, let me be coach for a minute. One of the things that I tell my players all the time is don't worry about the outcome. That's already decided. You have to worry in the moment about what you're doing in that moment because that's the only thing you can control. Friends, so many of you are worried about heaven, but the way heaven comes, that's already decided. The way heaven comes is in that moment, you partnering with the Holy Spirit not to earn heaven, not to earn salvation, but to partner with the appropriate Lord to submit to the appropriate Lord in that moment and say no to the Lord of self and yes to the Lord of our lives, Jesus Christ. So if you're a person who's sitting here in shame going, man, I am designated by that first list. Well, friends, that doesn't mean you stop. That means you do the next thing, which is to go to the Lord and repent and confess and say, Lord, I have been sitting under my own lordship, really, which is the lordship of Satan. I want to sit under your lordship. You have placed your Holy Spirit in me, and I beg and plead that you would empower him to be Lord of my life. That's the next thing. Well, now that Paul has portrayed the evidence of the two conflicting masters at war in the Christian, he provides a call to those, hopefully most of whom are sitting in this room, that would declare with their mouths that Christ is their Lord and Savior. And so last we see the closing call to every true Christian. Let's look at verses 25 and 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The statement here of if we live by the Spirit is a shorthand way of saying, if you have truly been brought from the spiritual death of original sin to the spiritual life through Jesus Christ, then you have also truly been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to lead you. And if this is the case in your life, then let us also keep in step with the Spirit's leading to be, the obedient, will, uh, excuse me, to be obedient to the will of God. In other words, if you are truly the Lord's and you have been truly saved by Christ's death and resurrection, then friends, you already automatically have the Holy Spirit within you. He's the one that made that happen. And he is now guiding you and leading you and calling you to obedience to God's will and word. You've just become partially deaf to his leading. A tree never needs to produce fruit by force. One of my favorite things my old pastor used to say is he used to demonstrate. And you've ever seen an apple tree go like this? And then an apple comes out? Never needs to force it. Never needs to force it. If it is watered by the rain and fed by the light of the sun, it will naturally produce fruit. Naturally, because it's out of its nature. For the Christian that is watered by the pure water of God's word and fed by the light of life contained in the people of God, they will naturally produce the fruit of the Spirit as well. White-knuckling change will not work. Humble hearts crying out to the Holy Spirit to effect change in their life in the midst of refining circumstances, that works. So let us also keep in step with the same spirit that has saved us, that has made it active in our life, that Jesus Christ has died for us 
in our place for our sin, resurrected in proof of his victory over the sin to which we used to cling so closely. The Spirit has made this active in our lives. And so let us now live in a way that evidences that Christ is our Lord, not just in word, but in deed as well. Let us not act in the flesh, but act in congruence with God's emissarial authority present in the Holy Spirit. This keep-in-step idea was used by Paul earlier in Galatians in 2.14 when he is recounting the story of how he called Peter out about being partial to Jews over Gentiles. In that moment, the apostle Peter was walking in the flesh and not in the spirit. He was causing dissensions and divisions rather than unity. And so Paul there in 2.14 declares that Peter's conduct was not in accordance with the theological truth of the gospel. It was out of step with the gospel because what Peter did spoke of an impartial uh, spoke of a partial God, but the true gospel speaks of an impartial God who chose his covenant partners not by our works, but by his grace. So for Peter to say he was part of Christ's kingdom by way of the gospel, but then not live it out in the implications of the gospel, well, that's the truest form of hypocrisy and brings his declaration of Christ as Lord into question. And so each of us, likewise, must strive to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit that points us to God's commands to avoid that same hypocritical charge. For if we declare with our mouths that Christ is Lord, then that means we have been justified, that we are being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit, and we will be glorified by God's mercy and grace alone. And here's the beautiful part about God's will. Because he knows that we are at war, he sees that our primary striving will be obedience, but that we will also fail at times. And so, yes, it's outside of our text, but look at the next little piece here. We won't go into it in great detail, but he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Friends, the Lord knows that we are but dust, and we will fail at times. This doesn't give us license. But it means that we constantly have to be remotivated and called back to following the Spirit. And so Paul finishes with a charge to the Christian under the Lordship of Christ that these same traits should be present as we work to bring those who have fallen back into flesh, back into a good standing with Christ and his church. In this, as we act out of selfless love for the ultimate goal of the good of our brother or sister, we will be fulfilling obedience to the authority of the one whom we call Lord. Brothers and sisters of mission, I believe that God has providentially brought us these scriptures in series over the last few months to call us to holiness, to root out any lingering sovereignty of self that seeks to lift itself up above your fellow members, any idolatry that hides within plain sight in our hearts and minds, and to make us a people uniquely and wholly submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And so let us all take a hard look at ourselves with the work of the Holy Spirit helping us to see clearly. And let us be a people that declare confidently that we live because of the Spirit, praise God. And so we are now also doing everything within our power to also keep in step with the Spirit partner with the Spirit as we daily come to the Lord in surrender and request that he change us by the power of his Spirit.
Let us show that our lives, our relationships, and our church belong to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.